0: Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with the authors of the manuscript, Racial Differences in Red Blood Cell Transfusion in Hospitalized Patients with Anemia. Welcome, Dr. Micah Prohaska and Dr. David Meltzer. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Prohaska, would you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure, thank you so much for having me. Um... I am one of the uh, clinician investigators and hospitalist clinicians in the uh, section of hospital medicine at the University
2: of Chicago.
0: Thank you. And Dr. Meltzer, can you introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Um, I'm David Meltzer. I'm chief of the section of hospital medicine at the University of Chicago. And I'm, um, in addition to being a physician, a PhD in economics. And I have secondary appointments in the School of Public Policy and the economics department.
0: Thank you. So can we start with a summary? Can you tell our listeners about your paper?
1: Sure. So this uh, paper was looking at um, transfusion uh, differences by uh, patient uh, race. And um, we sort of started off thinking that we wouldn't find any um, differences because there's no real clear um, guidelines or empiric evidence to um, support that practice. And it turns out that we actually did find some differences. Um, They're not straightforward. Um, What we saw was that in some instances, patients were under transfused, particularly African Americans, and in other instances, patients were over transfused, um, particularly whites. We didn't really see any differences in the number of um, units of red blood cells that patients were getting by race. Um, So they were mainly in in the sort of over and under transfusion category. Um, But we don't have a real good explanation for why these differences exist. Um, and so I think um, sort of the the conclusion of the paper was that we, we need to be aware of these and sort of now the next step is to identify what some of the causes of these differences may be.
0: So you mentioned both over and under transfusions. I think that's a really good point in this paper. So was it that African-Americans were under transfused or were whites over transfused? Do you have an opinion about which way it leans or is it a little bit of both?
1: Well, it's, it's probably both. Um, you know, I think... We we talk a little bit in the discussion about some of the potential causes of this, and <clears throat> David's actually the the one that had um, alerted me to a paper by um, I think the last name is Gronfeld in the Millbank Quarterly, taking a look at you know describing overtransfusion itself as a healthcare disparity, and their their paper is actually kind of interesting because they they alerted me to something that I was not aware of, which is that really when we talk about healthcare disparities, we're often talking about underutilization. Rather than overutilization, and so you could think about our sort of findings in in two ways. The first way is is that there was overutilization of care, and that's um, a healthcare disparity. And so then the you know the question is why. Um, and then the other the other way to sort of look at the findings are just that like doctors are not paying any attention to the standards that you know even our institution is asking people to adhere to in terms of transfusion, um, and so it's less of like an issue of like was there over transfusion or under transfusion and just like everybody kind of got bad care and didn't get the
2: standard standard that they should be getting.
0: That's a very nice way to summarize it.
2: Yeah, Mike, I mean, I think as an the economist part of, of me, I, I can comment, you know, there is a huge literature on overutilization of of medical services um, and a lot of that is tied to reimbursement models. and. Um, under fee-for-service reimbursement models where things are well compensated, people tend to do too much of things. It's interesting in the context of hospitalization where so little of our care at this point is truly fee-for-service that we see it from that perspective. But um, certainly there can be a culture of, quote, doing more rather than doing less. Um, And whether the belief that doing more um, is uh, correct, is better, is correct or or incorrect. That's a a set of habits that can be hard to die.
1: Yeah, I think it's probably like I I was going to wait to maybe get into the into this a little discussion a little bit more, um, Yara. but it's probably worth, you know, me describing some of the stuff that David and I have done that actually sort of frames this, I guess, the context of it and Um, You'll see it actually a little bit in the discussion section we talk about, you know, maybe one of the things that's going on here is that doctors are actually aware of the guidelines, believe the guidelines, but they're also sort of making individual transfusion decisions. And that's actually kind of been the sort of line of scientific inquiry that I've been following now for a number of years and really sort of looking at, um, maybe one of the problems with the restrictive transfusion thresholds is that we're sort of asking people to put everybody in a single box and you know, treat all the patients the same when we sort of know. And, and actually, the guidelines are even explicit themselves and sort of saying, you know, the hemoglobin measure is just one, one data point. We want you to also consider the individual patient and their um, clinical circumstances. And so the, the way this paper came about was I was actually sort of looking, are there differences in the fatigue and symptoms um, that patients are experiencing by the, across these hemoglobin levels? And that's when I started to actually notice in some of the models that I was running that there were actually differences in the the receipt of transfusion um, by race. So going back to your question about, well, you know, what could be one of the causes of odor over utilization? It, it could be that doctors are sort of taking a look at some patients and saying, I think this, you know, I know that their hemoglobin is seven five or I know that their hemoglobin is eight five, but I think they're symptomatic. Or I also know that, you know, 15 months ago, their hemoglobin was 9.5. And so I think it's important that I give them this unit of blood, even though they're not actively bleeding, even though I know and I believe all the restrictive transfusion data, I think it's important to give them this unit of blood. Um, that wouldn't explain why we see differences by race, um, but it could explain at least the overutilization part.
0: So you kind of alluded to my next question, which is how did you come up for that with the idea for this study?
1: Yeah. I, I really was actually. This actually came out of uh, work that we were doing in another paper, where we had seen actually significant differences in the symptoms that um, males and females experience with anemia, which which has some physiologic um, uh, basis to it, which is that you know females have a slightly lower hemoglobin level, and there's actually a, a sort of a you know number of observational studies that have shown um, differences in fatigue level. Um, in the outpatient setting um, in patients with anemia. So I thought, well, this would be kind of interesting because we're you know we're allowing patients to have much lower hemoglobin levels in the hospital. I wonder if these differences in fatigue level by sex are still present. And um, it turns out that they are it's not huge and um, fairly nuanced, but as I was doing that work, that's where I really started to see that race was a predictor of receipt of transfusion, and that's what led me down um, the pathway towards this analysis.
0: So you mentioned the anemia and quality of life study you're doing, you were doing when you discovered this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that one?
1: Yeah. So um, it's actually been a number of, of years now. Um, it's the, uh, I have an NHLBI K23 award, and it's the um, core of the work that I've been doing there is really looking at the effect of red blood cell transfusion on um, an outcome called fatigability, which is your fatigue and the context of the amount of activity you have. It's a little bit of a funny word, uh, but it, it came out of literature at the National Institute on Aging, where they've been thinking about fatigue a lot and trying to solve it as a sort of scientific problem and recognizing that it's a subjective self-reported measure. And so that makes it really hard to actually compare fatigue levels across patients that have totally different levels of activity. So fatigue ability is measuring your fatigue after a standardized um, activity which makes it possible then now to compare fatigability and ultimately fatigue across patients. So I came across this this literature in the NIA on fatigability and realized that you know in the transfusion world this has been a long standing problem which is like do we transfuse patients for symptoms um and the primary symptom of anemia is fatigue so should we transfuse a patient in the hospital for fatigue and um, as far as I know, the only real study the only real trial that's looked at that is, is uh, Jeff Carson's focus study. And they sort of were looking at fatigue, I think at 60 and 90 days after randomization, which is probably too far long to along to have sort of really determined whether the transfusion strategies, liberal or restrictive, actually affected fatigue. And they had some loss to follow up, which also made the analysis sort of complicated. But there's a whole bunch of observational data sort of looking at this question um, and then a few other trials that have sort of looked at broad quality of life measures but not sort of specific symptoms. So that was the work really, or that's the work that we're sort of doing and continuing to do um, that this came
2: out of. Yeah. Uh, l- let me elaborate just a, a little more about about why I think fatigability is such an important concept. You know, the, the challenge is is that if, if someone is anemic and and is experiencing fatigue because of it, they they may not be very active because of that fatigue. And if you go ahead and intervene and you transfuse them and their fatigue is relieved, they may respond by being more active. And in the context of becoming more active, they may in turn um, experience um, more fatigue. So if you try to measure the success of your intervention by only measuring fatigue levels, you may find no effect because the real benefit is increased activity. So the the beauty of fatigability is that it, as Micah said, describes your fatigue level in the the context of a given level of activity. And um, ultimately for these studies, I think where Micah's work is leading is that if we really want to understand the effects of interventions um, to address anemia and and fatigue jointly we need to incorporate activity as well and um, and probably direct measures of fatigue ability so as an economist I'm super interested in this because it's it's so behavioral
1: yeah and I think that the other like the other thing is when we think clinically about transfusing patients um, for fatigue like we definitely care that their fatigue gets better but Implicit in that is also that they're going to be more functionally active once they're discharged from the hospital. And that's sort of this long distal outcome that we actually are sort of targeting when we think about like, oh, I want to make them feel better. I want their fatigue to be better. I really want them to get up and, and have functional recovery. And I think the key thing is that fatigability is sort of uniquely able to answer this as an outcome um, in a way that the transfusion world really hasn't sort of uh, you know looked at. Um, in any real significant, meaningful way, particularly in a trial. And so that's what makes it so exciting and promising.
0: Yeah, I'd never heard the term fatigability, but I think that's a great way of thinking about it because fatigue is such a, it's just, it's just such a hard measure. Uh, you know, when people, when clinicians say, oh yeah, I need to transfuse because they're fatigued, you know, I'm fatigued some days too, but it's a, it's it's just a different thing. So I, I like the fatigability. So you mentioned that this all came out of the study of symptomatic anemia and that women and men feel the symptoms of anemia differently. Did you look at, and I can't remember in the paper, but did you look at differences in transfusions between men and women Was there a difference there, like there was between the races?
1: Yeah, and we didn't see any differences. Um, And actually, we also looked at at the differences in symptoms by race as part of this paper, because, again, it came out of that analysis, and we also didn't see any differences in symptoms by race either.
0: Interesting. So I know you said that you're not sure why the difference between the frequency of transfusion between the African-Americans and the white patients was there. But if you had to speculate, what do you think, or what are your leading theories
1: I, I think I would go back to um, probably the discussion we were just having. Like, I, I think that most clinicians are making individual transfusion decisions in patients um, in ways that they're sort of justifying with respect to restrictive transfusions. But I don't, I, I can't put my finger on it. I, we certainly don't have data to figure out why it is that we're still seeing these differences in race. So like, I'm much less concerned about the variation outside of restrictive transfusion strategies, because again, if I, if we think that people need additional um, red blood cells because they're very anemic and very symptomatic or because, you know, even though their hemoglobin is at an eight, it it was at a 10, 60 days ago, like that variation doesn't concern me. Um, I don't have a great sense of why we would see variation though in individual clinical characteristics. Uh, or the, in the decision to transfuse based on individual clear, clinical characteristics, based on race, um, maybe there are big social and societal factors that we sort of are seeing play out across um, not just healthcare but all domains of the world. And those types of things are are happening in our hospitals with transfusion patterns. Um, it's it's hard to say. Certainly, we wouldn't have that that in the, the data we have.
2: You know, it's interesting. As much as Mike and I have talked about this work, I, I think you know there are hypotheses we haven't fully considered or explored about why the differences may exist. And one of them that I think is worthy of at least a little bit more discussion is just the nature of our our white and and black patient populations at the University of Chicago. You know, we're located on the south side of Chicago, and quite a lot of our patients. Um, Our patients who come from the local neighborhood and the majority of those are African-American. And then a a, a disproportionate fraction of our our white patients um, come from a longer distance. Um, They've sought care with us, Um, you know, not just because we're nearby, but because, you know, they they didn't want to go to another place compared to coming to us. And I, I, I do wonder whether to some extent these differences that we see reflect the sort of care seeking tendencies of the white patients who come to us from a distance, as opposed to the, the black patients who are, um, you know, just coming from the neighborhood. And so it could be a, a local effect as well. I mean, it'd be very interesting to see if other institutions see similar patterns.
1: D- David, you probably, I, I, I thought you've written some papers about um, patients asking for or requesting things, not necessarily transfusion, um, but, you know, I thought I remember there was one in particular about discharge. When am I gonna be discharged? And if you ask that question, you're more likely to be discharged. And so maybe that's, is that sort of along the lines what you're thinking here?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's no question that we see clinicians being responsive to a patient need or request or preference, whether that's to stay in the hospital um, longer, or to get out of the hospital sooner, or to um, take an antibiotic if they've got what's probably a viral illness, um, or not take antibiotics or medications. So, um, you know, patient preferences matter. And of course, there are good reasons why they, they should. Um, um, so it, it's quite possible that that's part of what's going on here. But, you know, that's an untested hypothesis at this point.
1: Yeah, but it would make sense if, if you're driving and you're passing Northwestern, Rush, UIC, North Shore, to come from the north side down to the south side. Maybe there's a level of engagement with your own healthcare that when someone says you have anemia, you're more willing to say, what does that mean? And should I, oh, oh should I have a transfusion to fix that?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And patients definitely do request transfusions because I've had Clinicians request a unit of blood. And when I call and ask why, because the patient doesn't meet our criteria, they say, well, the patient wants it. So that may have something to do with it.
1: You know, one other thought I had as we're sitting here is I think one of the interesting things about the work that we've done is that we're looking at general medicine patients, which, you know, many of the, at least the trials, the transfusion trials are focused on really specific patient populations and not sort of looking at general medicine patients. The the reality is, though, general medicine patients have the highest. percentage of inpatient transfusions, but it's a really heterogeneous group, lots of different comorbidities, um, you know, will skew older, but all age ranges. Um, And so there's probably a lot more clinical variability in our patient population that was seen in this study, than you would sort of see in a typical transfusion trial. And that, again, could speak to some of these differences in individual patients that doctors are recognizing that aren't fully captured either in the the transfusion guidelines or in the trial data.
0: So, thinking of other potential causes for either over-transfusion and or under-transfusion in the African-Americans, do you think there was a difference within providers such as provider experience or uh, training or something provider-specific?
1: It's interesting... I'm not sure the, the training would be would be kind of fascinating. I think there's probably even though I was trained in an era where restrictive transfusions were practiced, um, I think my sense of the the younger trainees is they're they're much more adherent to them. And so it'd be kind of interesting to look across the providers. I think one of the, the things that we described in the paper as a limitation is it' would be really interesting to see um, the provider data know. You know how many providers were saying we think you should get a transfusion and having patients say no one of the other things outside of the transfusion stuff that that david and i have done within the past year and a half is um look at uh, patient trust in general medicine patients which has been kind of a fascinating time to do it and so you can imagine um a scenario in which a doctor is saying i think you should get this transfusion and a patient is saying you know i, I don't think so um i don't, I don't want that um, and maybe there's issues of trust there. We we actually didn't see lots of reductions in, in patients trusting their physician, but there may be something there and it may be related to the, to, you know, any number of provider or patient characteristics.
2: Well, one other just comment to make is the, the study was focused on general medicine patients and on our general medicine services with a small number of exceptions, um, patients are cared for by... Um, teams that basically work on a call cycle. So you're not choosing in any sense your your doctor. So um, in essence, black and white patients were assigned at random to the different doctors. And so there isn't a reason that I can see that would obviously explain why differences in provider practices to the extent they exist would then translate into differences by race given that sort of random assortment.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you shared these results with the providers at your institution yet?
1: No, we have not, actually. Um, it's, it's probably worth doing. We have a number of different uh, section-wide research seminars and department-wide, institution-wide research seminars and probably be worth um, sharing them. I think it was just a remnant of getting it accepted at a time where there was a bunch of other things going on. And so Um, in fact, I think we just recently even, it was recently just, um, sent out that the paper had been been published. So it's probably a good thing to, to actually present and see what people think.
0: So looking back over the study and your findings, what has surprised you the most?
1: I think that the, in the less than seven grams per deciliter group, you know, there was 20% Twenty percent of African Americans or eighty percent received transfusion, so twenty percent probably shouldn't should have. And we also see eighty six percent of whites were transfused, and fourteen percent weren't, and they probably should have. Um, and then ninety two percent of other race were transfused, and eight percent were not, and they, and they probably should have. So I'm really kind of interested. I think in that group, I can come up with some scenarios for this: the hemoglobin between seven and seven nine group, and even the eight to eight point nine group. Um, but that group, I'm not, I, I can't figure out, I would I would have thought based on how um, well-versed people appear to be in restrictive transfusion practices and how adherent they seem to suggest that they are. I would have thought that we would have been like 95 and 99% transfusion in all of those groups. Um, and so I'm, I think that's the group that I'm most surprised by uh, that there's variation there.
0: David, what about you? What surprised you?
2: I actually think it's the it's the same thing. Um, I I I don't understand why those folks weren't transfused, and it's interesting. Um, we haven't gone back and looked at charts and tried to figure out if there are stories there that you know come through in the notes that didn't come through in our empirical analysis, and it feels like it's worth doing.
0: Well, I think the point you made about did the clinician recommend the transfusion and the patient refused does that lead back to Uh, physician trust? That Those are all really good questions. You're right, because 20% of patients not getting a transfusion at a less than seven seems very surprising.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you told me it was 5%, I could think, well, okay, maybe there's circumstances that we weren't able to capture in this data. Um, But 20% is a lot. And even the 14% and the 8% are significant. And so I think that's where I say that's very surprising, very, very surprising.
2: I mean I, I think I think that, that that's a great question and a, a, you know a strong hypothesis there is this part of me that also wonders whether you know for patients who've been admitted repeatedly and people see a low hemoglobin the last time they were admitted you know a few weeks ago and it was sort of in that range they just go well it's about where it's been and you know they forget about the guidelines and you know think about it in the context of the patient's history which, you know, in some instances makes sense, but in most probably might not.
1: Yeah, One of the things that David and I have talked a little bit about too, is that one of the consequences of the, of the guidelines is that at least in hospitalized patients, like what we consider to be anemia is like much, the hemoglobin levels are much lower. And so we've actually done some kind of interesting stuff and we don't quite have the data yet, but we're sort of trying to capture this where probably 10 years ago, if a patient had a hemoglobin of 10, the provider, they may not, they may or may not have given a transfusion because um, they might have known about some of these trials, but they probably would have recorded it in the problem list. But now if you come in with a hemoglobin of nine, I always joke like the residents don't even report anemia on the problem list because for them, it hasn't even reached the level at which you would consider doing anything. It's not a, an important issue because we should only transfuse them if their hemoglobin is less than seven. So that may speak to somewhat, somewhat of, of David's saying, what David's saying there, which is that our sense of like what's normal and abnormal has shifted a little bit, and so we're sort of think, well, it's it's not such a big deal. I don't need to worry about this so
2: much. Well, and of course, I mean that's it's a, that's a, a clinically narrow perspective because, of course, you'd want to know well why is the hemoglobin below the range you usually expect it to be, even if it's not the case that they're necessarily a candidate for transfusion, right? It, it's, it's way too easy, particularly for hospitalists to think um, anemia, transfusion, as opposed to all the other things that one could think about in response to a low hemoglobin.
1: Exactly, and particularly because we know, and most of this is outpatient data, and that may be another blind spot for inpatient providers, but we know that anemia at at much higher hemoglobins um, than restrictive transfusion practices are associated with lots and lots of adverse outcomes, mortality, morbidity, functional decline. And so if we're sort of like uniformly not considering it to be abnormal or as a problem, um, and we're sending patients home, we're, we're doing like a real disservice to the patients.
2: Yeah, I mean, Micah. One other thing, just to 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 think about is, you know, the sort of spuriously low hemoglobin level that's you know drawn below an IV, right, <laughs> or above an IV. Yeah. So
1: we we actually um, now this is going back definitely a number of years because when we when we look at the this data set, we cleaned it, but we did look at I think every hemoglobin below six. Um, which there's actually a fair number. And I was like convinced they would all be sort of abnormal. And it turns out like they're not all abnormal. People had, you know, instances of extremely low hemoglobins, but we went back and manually checked all of the really low hemoglobins to make sure that they were real, um, real values in in this data set. But it's a good, it's a good point overall.
0: Yeah, I think we do become numb to to the anemia because in chronically ill patients, I see a hemoglobin of nine, I think they're doing great, but nine's not a normal level. It's just way better than they usually are. What was the most difficult part of the study?
1: I think it was, this is probably every paper ever, but I I think trying to really think through, you know, definitely the regression models and trying to think, have I I really missed something? Um, This is obviously a very sensitive subject and you want to make sure that you're, you know, being really diligent and thoughtful um, rather than sort of quick and and firing off you know the, the models to produce a, a result. so I think we spent a lot of time. Like, are we missing something? Did we not think about the populations right? Is there some some hidden spot within the data that we've not considered? And so I think you know, trying to find the right model, trying to make sure that the model um was stable and that these coefficients really represented what we were seeing was probably the most difficult part and, you know, definitely the part that took the longest.
0: So what's next for you? Where do you go with this data from here?
1: So I think, you know, the, like I, I said, the, you know, my real interest is looking at the effect of red blood cell transfusion on, on patient symptoms and looking at how individual chemical care- characteristics sh- may influence you know not just the need for a transfusion but a response to transfusion and so that's sort of where i spend the majority of my time and i think this fits within that and trying to figure out like is there something about individuals um, that the clinicians are again recognizing the restrictive transfusion guidelines but sort of making their own decisions clinically and is that what we're seeing um, and where is the heterogeneity across patients where some are getting it and some are not and I, I I don't know that that will explain race, and I, in some sense, I hope it doesn't, um, explain race. But it but it may, and it's probably the the next step to figure out what's what's going on with this uh, practice variation.
0: And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Prohaska and Dr. Meltzer for joining us for a really great discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusion's Monthly Podcast. See you next time.